Hi, and welcome to another episode of Ethics for a Changing World. This week, we're interviewing Harry Farmer, a researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute, about the dangers and benefits of biometric technology. We've all seen science fiction films where characters have to scan their eyes, scan their hands to gain access to a building. But what would happen if we applied that kind of technology to society as it exists now? Due to recent developments in biometric technology, that's no longer the stuff of science fiction, nor is facial recognition technology. And so the question is, what happens when we apply that to society as it is now? And that's what we're going to be discussing in this podcast. Firstly, we're going to just briefly outline the dangers and benefits of rapidly evolving biometric technologies. Then we're going to look specifically at the social credit systems which exist in different parts of the world, looking specifically at China and making comparisons between the system that exists there and the systems that exist in the UK and could potentially exist. We're going to be looking especially at the regulatory difficulties associated with biometric technology and whether it's as dangerous in the hands of governments as it is in the hands of corporations. Finally, we're going to be looking at the radical impacts, both good and bad, that biometric data could have on our healthcare systems. If you'd like to hear more about what we get up to, including our weekly roundup of tech ethics and regulation, as well as explainers, you can follow us on Twitter at EthicsTechPod or on Instagram, Ethics for a Changing World. Without further ado, on with the show. So, Harry, it's great to have you on the show. Could you start just by telling us a little bit about your work at the Ada Lovelace Institute? Yeah, of course. Um, so just to provide a bit of context, I'm a researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute. And over the course of 2021, so last year, I led a program exploring the societal and the ethical ramifications of biometric technologies and biometric data um, Ada's work on biometrics has been going on for a while and has a few different strands to it. Back in 2019, we called for a voluntary moratorium on facial recognition, arguing that the societal and ethical and legal conditions for the responsible use of emerging biometric technologies needed to be established before any such technologies could be rolled out. We followed that up with a survey of public attitudes towards facial recognition called Beyond Face Value. And over the course of 2020, we established and ran the Citizens Biometrics Council, which got members of the UK public to deliberate on the use of biometric technologies and data. And we also commissioned an independent legal review of the governments of biometric data in England and Wales, led by Matthew Ryder QC, which we're due to publish this year imminently, in fact. In terms of what I was doing, I think a lot of the thinking I did over the course of 2021 was really an attempt to provide a systematic account of what we're worried about when we worry about biometrics, which seems to be something that we do quite a lot as a society. So really asking how are the risks posed by biometrics similar to and different from ones posed by other emerging and existing technologies? And what are the different risk profiles associated with different kinds of biometric technologies? And this was all really in a bid to help us be a bit more precise about the harms and benefits associated with biometrics, and also fundamentally to help us understand existing laws, regulation and norms will be sufficient to address our concerns and where there's a need for reform. That sounds really interesting. Um, so the focus of our podcast today is going to be on biometric data. There's always a, a worry with 
the stuff we talk about on this podcast that it sounds like the stuff of science fiction, but it's very much real. Could you tell us firstly what actually we mean by biometric data and where we're at in terms of it? Biometric data is fundamentally data that relates to measurable, quantifiable physical characteristics of individuals. And by extension, you can define biometric technologies as ones which use biometric data to derive information about people. So this might be to establish the presence of a person, to verify or determine a person's identity, or to make some other assessments about a person, that is to categorize a person. Some traditional examples of biometric data would be things like fingerprints, iris scans, kind of out of push more recently, things like DNA. But more recently, as a result of advances in AI and in sensor technology, and with a huge increase in the availability of both human digital labor and biometric data itself, we've seen the rise of progressively more effective facial recognition and voice recognition systems. For similar reasons, we're also seeing the emergence of what are called behavioral biometrics. So in contrast to more traditional biometric systems, which will look at a fixed feature of a person, such as, say, the geometry of their face or the particular texture of the back of their eye, these uh, behavioral biometric systems look for patterns in the way that people move and interact with the world. So these would be things like gait analysis, which assesses the nuances of how particular people walk, typically from video footage, or would be things like typing signatures, which look at the cadences with which people hit keys on keyboards or the means by which they swipe across touchscreens. It's also worth noting that although biometric data and technologies are often defined in terms of their ability to identify individuals, biometric tech can also be used for categorization and making judgments about people without necessarily identifying them. And a good example of this is technologies which can guess your age from an image of your face. This can be done without any need to work out exactly who you are. We talked a little bit about what biometrics actually are. What are we concerned about, just very broadly speaking, when it comes to biometrics? So I think there are a few distinct kinds of concerns that we might have about biometric systems, some of which have been pretty explicitly involved in driving objections to the technology over the past few years, and some of which have received considerably less attention. So in rough order of complexity, I'd say that you have worries about the potential failure of these systems. Um, You have worries about error and poor accuracy and particularly differential accuracy or these systems being more accurate for certain groups of people than for others and a discriminatory effect emanating from that. There's also the problem of bias in biometric systems. So this question of when systems are making predictions about people on the basis of biometric data, whether those predictions are made on the basis of information which we believe should be relevant to that prediction or is irrelevant. And then I think there are a ton of worries about privacy. So I think biometric systems can be used to access personal data that some people would rather keep private. It can also be used together and far more easily process lots of pieces of non-private information, which can be quite revealing about people when put together. 
And also it can be used to make inferences um, about people and about people's private lives and people's private characteristics from pieces of non-private information. So you might, for instance, derive from someone's um, publicly posted Fitbit data about, you know, how much they're exercising, how much they're moving about, when they're going to bed. You could make an inference about whether or whether or not a person was um, clinically depressed, you could make inferences about their sex life from those pieces of data, which is you know really really intimate private inferences that you can get from public data when you process it in particular ways. I think there are also worries about um, undermining human agency, and biometric data is particularly useful for nudging people, understanding how people are responding to cues, and then learning how to get people to respond in particular ways. Um, and finally, I think there are a set of worries about the ability of biometric data to undermine societally important forms of uncertainty, which is something that I hope we can explore a bit more later on. So I'll just leave that as a teaser there. Finally, I think it's worth also saying that a lot of the concerns that I've just spelt out or alluded to are pretty similar in kind to lots of concerns that people have about the use of data and about AI systems more generally. So these worries about failure, bias, privacy, agency and power and creating a world about without uncertainty aren't unique to biometrics by any means. But there are some features of biometric data and biometric technologies that can make these kinds of concerns more acute and more urgent in the context of biometrics. One of these factors is that some forms of biometric data are very easily collected in physical settings and without the consent or knowledge of the data subject. And this leads to the potential for mass surveillance and personal data collection to make a transition from cyberspace where it's currently most viable into physical space and in so doing it makes these things far harder to escape or to opt out of. I can just about at the moment choose not to use the internet and thereby avoid having a lot of my activity monitored but I can't with the best will in the world choose not to walk down the street and not therefore get captured by a facial recognition enabled CCTV camera. So I think that's one really important feature of biometrics. The other important feature of biometric data is that it tends to be a lot more revealing of intimate personal information than many other kinds of personal data. And with biometric data, you also tend to need fewer data points to be able to make interesting inferences. And I think this lowers the threshold at which the collection of your biometric data risks violating your privacy in meaningful ways. So these are some of the reasons why we choose to focus particular attention on the collection and the processing of biometric data specifically. When we're talking about biometric data, I guess the image that comes to a lot of people's minds is kind of images which come out of China, which a lot of people have probably seen with people walking around, they've got numbers above their head. So it's it's that kind of thing. And I think a really useful framing for this conversation is to talk about China because it's regarded very much with horror by a lot of people in the West. And the important question then is what can we learn both in terms of what we like and what we don't like from their system. So I think we should just start by talking about what China's social credit system, which makes use of biometric data, what it actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the description of the social credit scheme that you see most commonly in the media over here 
is a description of a scheme run by the Chinese government, which uses large amounts of personal data from shopping habits to internet browsing activity to our movements around the city to create a quote-unquote trustworthiness score for every Chinese resident. And this essentially reflects the extent to which you conform to or deviate from the Chinese government's picture of a model Chinese citizen. And there are benefits to having a higher score. So the one that often gets mentioned is people with a high enough score are able to rent a car without a deposit. And then there are also some pretty significant disadvantages to having a score which is too low, including not being able to travel freely. So I think some people who have a score that's too low can't get on the high-speed trains, for instance. This picture isn't completely wrong. It's not as if nothing of this nature exists in China. But the idea of the social credit scheme as a single centrally run and universal system currently operating isn't quite right either. There isn't a single all-powerful score assigned to every individual in China. In fact, the system as it exists today is more of a patchwork of regional pilots and experimental projects. So there are dozens of different schemes operating in different parts of the country, some of which are run by the state and which are mandatory and which involve significant restrictions being placed on people whose credit scores are deemed too low. And then there are lots of others which are in fact run by companies and which are voluntary and which actually really don't look that much different to some schemes that you would have offered by employers or insurers in the West. That's a really useful segue. So we've, we've got China set up as one kind of model of the use of, of biometric data with its social credit system that most people are scared by. What about if we come back to the UK? Where are we at in the UK in terms of regulation of biometric data and the adoption of those technologies as well? It's a good question. I mean, just to hold on China for a second before I segue into discussing um, the UK and other Western countries and any kind of comparison between China and, and those places. I think it's worth saying that I think people are right to be concerned about the way that personal and biometric data is used by the state in China. The fact that full-on compulsory social credit schemes are still regional pilots doesn't make them any less pernicious. And I think their mere existence says worrying things about the intended direction of travel. So that's just a bit of a caveat. But I'm um, comparing that use um, to the use of biometric data in the West. I guess one way into this question is to ask, could you have a social credit scheme emerge here in the UK or in the European Union, for instance? To answer that, I think you need to be clear about whether you're talking about companies collecting data to make assessments about people or whether you're talking about the state doing it, because the incentives for those two kinds of actors and the regulatory constraints operating on them are going to be importantly different. If you're talking about companies doing it, um, then I think you already do see the large-scale process of personal data by companies to make assessments about people in a way which will determine pretty life, important life decisions about them. And, and the key kind of example of how this happens in the West is with with credit scores themselves and with credit companies like Experion and Equifax. So 
and and it's telling that you know this is the origin of the term social credit score is that that's a variation on credit scores which are a very common um, and very kind of intimate source of personal data which is used in a life-altering way kind of in the west so these things aren't completely without precedent if you're thinking about the use of private personal data by by companies so i guess crucial to how companies use biometric data and biometric technology is has a lot to do with regulation so how does regulation play into the use of biometric data here if you're thinking specifically about the use of biometric data in the west by companies things are a bit more complicated so biometric data is regarded as a particularly sensitive category of personal data in terms of the law and is therefore afforded special protections. So the threshold for legitimately processing personal biometric data is higher than for other kinds of personal data. But protections are by no means watertight. So just taking the UK as an example, we have three things to note with our um, data protection around biometric data are firstly that restrictions on the use of biometric data only apply to when data is used to identify individuals, but not to categorize them. So lots of deployments of biometric data that you might have, for instance, to assess someone's mood, to assess their age, assess how they're responding to a particular stimulus, which all could be quite invasive uses of biometrics. Those don't fall within the scope of data protection law at the moment. Data protection law is all about whether or not a person is identified. That's the threshold for inclusion, which I think constitutes a a big lacuna in our legal protections around how these technologies are used. Another thing to bear in mind is a lot of the law restricting the use of biometrics in the UK, so equalities legislation, for instance, only applies to public sector bodies. It doesn't apply to companies or apply to individuals, which again is a really big gap in our protections. And then finally, and this is more of a um, a kind of pragmatic point, but um, legal restrictions on the use of biometric data only apply to biometric data that's been processed. So if you think about taking a digital photo of a person's face, the digital photo itself counts as raw or unprocessed biometric data. Now, it only becomes processed once you use a particular piece of technology to extract the facial geometry template from that. And the reason that this distinction um, is applied in law is because lots of companies, for so Facebook, for instance, companies which will kind of hold lots and lots of photos of people's faces but don't necessarily use any facial recognition on those faces, having the, the point of regulatory kind of intervention at um, just holding those those facial images um, would be massively onerous from the perspective of those companies. The problem with this is it pushes the point of policing of whether or not biometric data is used kind of downstream to a point at which it's very, very difficult to know whether a company is actually processing data. There are no restrictions on taking my photo, and then that goes off into some hard drive somewhere. Um, and then yeah, we don't know whether that has been subject to biometric processing. So I think there are problems around enforcement, given where we've drawn the line in terms of what counts as biometric data, which falls under under legal protections. Um, so there are three things to note about um, kind of gaps in, in protection in the West and specifically in the UK. 
It's also worth noting when considering the comparison between the West and China that China has actually recently introduced what's been called the Personal Information Protection Law, which introduces some fairly substantial restrictions on the handling of data by companies, though notably exempts the state. It's probably too early to say what the impact of this law is going to be in practice and how rigorously it's going to be enforced. But in terms of corporate uses of biometric data, it may be that we see the gap between what can be done in China and what can be done in the West conceivably start to narrow. Okay, so that's corporations. And then what about if we apply this to the state? Where are we at in terms of states using biometric data? If you're talking about the state processing biometric data, um, things are currently a bit less clear with the West. There's obviously been a huge amount of controversy around police and law enforcement uses of biometrics over the past few years, mainly though not exclusively related to the use of live facial recognition. Um, and we've seen in the European Union the proposed AI regulations announced early in 2021 explicitly include restrictions on some forms of biometric technology with clear surveillance applications. So specifically what are called remote real-time biometric identification systems. There are some pretty notable loopholes and exceptions to those restrictions. Um, I won't go into them here because they're, they're pretty well explored in other places. But my boss, Carly Kind, who's the director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, has a really good blog called Containing the Canary in the AI Coal Mine, which goes through them really well. And then looking at the UK, um, there's also a bit of an ongoing debate about how, if at all, the police should use biometric systems. And there was a really high profile case back in 2020 between a guy called Ed Bridges and South Wales Police of whether or not the deployment of a live facial recognition system was lawful. And this went all the way up to the Court of Appeal, which found that there was not an adequate legal framework in place governing police use of live facial recognition in England and Wales. So there's a big gap there that's been identified which needs to be addressed. In terms of the motivation of state actors in the West and those of China, um, I think there's far more ambition and political will to use personal and biometric data to surveil, monitor and to control its population. Security services in the West, of course, engage in dragnet surveillance, and we've known this for a while, and they will no doubt be lobbying for more and more invasive means of doing this. But the ambition is still, for the moment, limited to the detection of threats to state security. By contrast, one of the things you hear um, Chinese government officials apparently suggesting is that population surveillance is actually one of the tools that China has in the absence of democratic mechanisms to understand and be responsive to the mood and desires of its citizenry. So I think the ambitions um, of, of the state in China when it comes to using biometric technologies are, are fundamentally quite different. And really, to come back to this comparison between China and the West, I'd say the top line is that the ambitions of companies in China and the West are pretty much the same. They want to do the same thing, which is to maximize profits. And increasingly, they look like they can be subject to pretty similar regulatory restrictions in how they do this. But if you're comparing state uses of biometrics in China and the West, you'll see that the ambitions of the Chinese state look materially different to those of Western governments. 
and there are actually very few regulatory restrictions in China on those sorts of uses of biometrics, compared to, I think, substantial but still imperfect attempts at regulation in many parts of the West. That's really interesting, and it raises this question. You've drawn this distinction between governments and corporations having our data. Are they both equally dangerous? I think one thing that I've already mentioned, which is useful to keep in mind, is the more limited and I suppose more prosaic ambitions of companies when it comes to using our data. Companies typically are interested in profit maximization and, you know, cornering and dominating kind of markets in which they operate. Um, whereas states could have a kind of wider set of, of desires and ambitions when it comes to using personal data. I think it's probably easy to understate how the prosaic ambitions of, of companies might manifest themselves. So I think the use of personal data by companies um, can be used in ways which amount to quite significant um, economic discrimination and in ways which we would consider quite pernicious, particularly when we're considering something as intimate as biometric data. So, I mean, insurance provides a pretty um, clear example of this. Insurance companies obviously want to use our data to understand who is a good prospect for insurance, who is likely to be making claims. And this can result in some people, as a result of their data profiles, finding it very, very difficult to get insurance. Um, this becomes increasingly difficult when you're considering parts of the world where healthcare um, is provided through health insurance schemes. Another thing that's probably worth mentioning in terms of corporate uses of personal data and biometric data is actually in workplaces and in recruitment. There is a lot of talk now um, about the use of data as, as a managerial tool, as a means of understanding how um, a company's employees are behaving, um, how they're interacting with their workplace environment, how hard they're working. So one thing um, that you heard a lot of scare stories about at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic was a surge in interest in companies which use things like eye tracking technology um, to monitor the productivity of remote workers. So uses of biometric technologies there. Um, also in terms of recruitment, one of the potential uses of biometric data and biometric technologies is to make assessments about who is suitable for jobs. Um, one way of doing this is just kind of assessing the means by which people um, respond to cues in interviews, um, responding to facial expressions, making judgments about how engaged people seem or how not engaged they seem. But there's also potentially ways that you can just look at correlations between certain uh, features that people may have, certain biometric features, and data that we may have about other people's kind of suitability for jobs down the line. So there are quite a few ways that um, companies might be incentivized to use these technologies. Another thing that's worth noting here is the phenomenon of personalized pricing, whereby um, people are offered different prices for the same product or the same good based on perceptions of their willingness or their ability to pay. So kind of, again, a fairly kind of straightforward pedestrian example of this is if you're searching for a flight in a crowded market, typically people searching from Macs rather than PCs would be offered higher prices. And the reasoning behind that is that people who own Macs tend to be richer because they're, they're more expensive kinds of computers. 
But there are really quite sophisticated ways that people's personal data can be used in the service of of personalized pricing. And when you think about um, biometric data specifically, one of the things that makes biometric data unique is its applicability to offline spaces. So if you think about something like facial recognition, that's something that a person can be subjected to without having to be kind of online or interacting with a computer system. They can just be under the, the gaze of a CCTV camera, which is enabled by metrics. So you can imagine a lot of the application personalized pricing making the jump from the the digital realm to the physical realm. You could imagine, for instance, browsing through a shop and your expressions as you look at particular products being monitored and used to determine prices that you pay for other things, for example. So these are some of the examples by which corporations might seek to use our personal data. In terms of, of state uses, I, I think there is a broader range of, of incentives that a state might have, but biometrics are peculiarly well suited to being used as, as a tool for state control. One of the applications um, that a lot of states have looked at for biometric technologies, and again, specifically facial recognition and gait analysis, is the monitoring of protests, the monitoring of dissent in public spaces. Um, Biometrics are very useful for identifying people in crowds and for following people around crowds. So if you have governments which are that way incentivized, this is a particularly powerful technology. I think those are some of the uses which um, we need to be alive to in that context. Context. I think this is me studiously refusing to answer the question of whether we should be more worried about state versus corporate uses of these technologies. I think we need to be concerned about both, though the flavour of the concern is, is pretty different according to, to which we're thinking about. And just to pick up on something that you said about facial recognition and protests, it's very easy to say from a Western democratic country like the UK, that's not going to happen here. That's something that happens elsewhere. But can you see that posing problems for us? I think it's um, it's becoming an increasingly material question in, in the West. And I think there's a tendency to be fairly complacent because if you look at these technologies and the sorts of capabilities that they give governments, they seem to be the sorts of things which would only really pose a threat in authoritarian regimes where there are restrictions on protests, there are restrictions on on political dissent, which are pretty heavily um, cracked down upon. Just to use the UK as an example, um, if you consider the piece of legislation which is going through Parliament at the moment, the Police, Crime, Courts and Sentencing Bill, that's a piece of legislation which introduces some pretty vaguely worded but also well pretty tough restrictions on peaceful protest so there are restrictions in this bill around how much noise that you can make at a protest and whether or not um, your protesting um, is liable to cause serious annoyance to people in the vicinity and things which fall on the wrong side of that threshold will now be criminalized And if you consider those sorts of restrictions with potential police deployments of live facial recognition or even retrospective facial recognition at protests, there is 
a real material chance that that fundamentally alters the calculation that people considering going out to protest might make before, even if um, certain forms of protest were criminalised, you could still essentially be a face in a crowd and be fairly confident unless you were a major instigator of an act of disruption, in which case the police might expend serious resources in trying to identify you, track you down. You know, before you could be fairly confident of a degree of anonymity, you could be an anonymous face in the crowd. But with the deployment of these technologies, it massively reduces the amount of time and effort that it takes to to identify individual protesters. And you could potentially identify every single individual protester in you know a, a large crowd of thousands of people. So I think in terms of the chilling effect this will have on on public gatherings and on peaceful protest, these these technological capacities and in particular the use by the police really does affect the the decisions a lot of people will be making when considering whether or not to go out to protest and when taken in combination with some legislation which looks pretty likely to enter the uk statute book soon terrifying stuff um we'll maybe get to something more cheerful at the end but before we get there there's one more application of biometrics which i'd like to talk about which is in the realm of healthcare now it's a little bit different between different countries it obviously matters as you mentioned these kinds of credit systems exist for financial institutions but they also exist in some countries like the us for medical insurance but we don't have that in the uk And the NHS is based on the idea of spreading risk. It's based on the idea, as well as some social justice concerns and rights to healthcare, that we don't know who's going to get ill. So we all pay for it on the basis of this idea of spreading risk. But actually, with the introduction of biometric technologies, which can make certain predictions based on your genetics and potentially based on your lifestyle, does that fundamentally change that? calculation and you can can you see that significantly altering the way we think about healthcare in this country i mean i think it's a really good and really fascinating question i suppose one caveat and you alluded to this in the way that you framed the question is that it's not just biometric data which can reveal a lot about people's medical past and their present and their future Um, but i think biometric data is uniquely useful for a lot of lots of the kind of things that we might want to be predicting about um, people's medical status. And it's also, it can often be a form of data which is very difficult to withhold. So again, if you think about facial recognition, if you think about something like the cadences of someone's voice, these are quite difficult pieces of information to stop getting out into the public domain or stop being collected if people are determined to collect them. I think this is one reason why we might want to concentrate on biometrics in the context of healthcare. But yeah, as you said, biometrics can reveal a lot about people's medical history, about their medical status currently, and about the likelihood that they develop particular conditions or particular diseases in the future and you know what the future of their health looks like. And I think there are a few challenges that you can see this raising. One of them, as, as you mentioned, is in the context of taxpayer-funded systems like the NHS, tax, taxpayer health systems, 
So there are a few challenges that you could see this raising. Um, one is in the context of taxpayer-funded healthcare systems like the NHS. There's this question of how we convince everyone to pay in when we know who is going to be drawing on the system and who isn't. If that information exists, enabled by the collection and processing of biometric data about who is going to have a long, healthy life, who is going to be requiring lots of healthcare resources, I think that sense of solidarity that we get from basically not knowing who is going to need to draw on the system and who isn't, you can see that quite quickly eroding and people who know that they're going to be healthy for the majority of their life starting to resent having to pay for those who are going to have to be net recipients of, of that collective resource. I think in the context of private healthcare, you see this problem manifest in a different way. Um, And one of the questions here is, how do we preserve access to healthcare? So in a situation in which it's it's pretty well known who's going to need to use lots of healthcare and who isn't, how do those who are more likely to need healthcare keep access at affordable rates? How do you stop healthcare companies refusing to provide care for certain people because they're deemed to be too expensive? Or how do you stop them from fleecing those people? And then I suppose an auxiliary question here is, given that these sorts of things are predictive, it's it's based on a calculation of probability, it's based on historical calculations between having particular observable traits and then medical prognoses. What's the evidential standard applied to these decisions? How certain does a predictive system need to be for it to deny someone access to healthcare or for it to put the rate that they pay for health insurance up significantly? Then I suppose there's also a question which you can see both in private healthcare contexts and in a context of the NHS of for people who are at risk of certain conditions, will healthcare start to become conditional on behaving in a particular way? So if, for instance, I have an increased likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes, will there be arguments that um, I can only reasonably expect to receive certain kinds of expensive treatments if I can demonstrate that I have been regularly exercising, that I've been keeping my weight down and that I've been eating in a way which is conducive to me not developing type 2 diabetes. And there I think you see things like biometric technologies like health trackers, like wearables, so Fitbits. These are technologies which allow that sort of monitoring of of people's health habits. So again, you have biometric technologies enabling the prediction, but you also have them um, potentially enabling the way that we monitor people according to the prediction that we've made about them. And then I think there's a final question that is difficult, and I'm not going to be offering any um, hard and fast solutions or answers to these questions, but posing them because I think they are things that we may need to start grappling with as a society as as these technologies of predictive analytics and biometric data collection become more sophisticated. How do you sustain public health initiatives, which are kind of one size fits all? So I'm thinking here about kind of sin taxes, so taxes on sugary drinks or on um, smoking or on alcohol. How do you sustain those sorts of public health initiatives if we know that some people are going to have more negative health um, consequences from consuming certain things than others. I guess a kind of almost flippant example of this is, you know, everyone has that fictional granddad who smoked, you know, 70 cigarettes a day and never got lung cancer and lived to the age of 95. 
if biometric technologies or, or personal health data more generally can tell us which one of us is that figurative granddad who can smoke with apparently no health consequences for all his life, and they can tell us who is going to be at serious risk of developing lung cancer through smoking. How do we justify taxing that fictional granddad more for buying cigarettes versus the person who's actually going to have the health consequences and who is going to actually need to draw on a collective resource as the result of that? Is this the end to those sorts of one-size-fits-all interventions? And could we potentially see a world in which some people pay more for cigarettes than others, some people pay more for fattening indulgent foods than others, because some people can consume these things at very low risk to society and others simply can't. Um, again, I, that seems a very long way off. And, you know, there are practical issues with charging people different prices for the same sorts of products. But it's a pressure you could see existing in a world in which there is quite a lot of certainty around people's medical futures and how people will interact with certain external stimuli. It's been a really fascinating discussion. I just want to ask you one last question, because there's a lot that's been quite scary within what we've discussed today. Do you think we have any reasons to be cheerful about any of this? So I think that a lot of the capabilities that we have been talking about are incredibly powerful. And, and that's the reason why they're so scary. So the idea that we could know with a reasonable degree of confidence what someone's kind of medical future is going to look like. Um, that's scary because that's a really important, powerful thing to know. And in the wrong hands, that results in some really significant imbalances of power. But at the same time, I think being able to live in a world in which we can know who will require medical interventions um, in the future, potentially, being able to live in a world in which people can plan for those sorts of eventualities and thereby massively, potentially, increase their quality of life. I think that's a huge source of optimism if we can get these distributional questions right, if we can get these questions right about privacy and balances of power. I think there is huge amounts of positive potential in these technologies. I think it's a question of the existing societal and economic systems in which they were applied. You know, if we superimpose these technologies onto systems and societal arrangements, which are already very unequal, both in terms of power and in terms of money, we get to some quite dark places. But at the same time, these systems do have huge life enhancing potential. So I think that we need to get the way that we are arranging life around them right if we want to be optimists about this. That's a really good note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us, Harry. It's been a real pleasure talking with you.